Lord, we're so grateful for the privilege you've given to us to come to the Revelation of Hope seminar tonight. Lord, as we take a look at the world around us, we see, Lord, that this world is falling apart in every different way. There's so much pain. Our world is saturated with sorrow and plagued with pain, and there's chaos on every side. But thank you, Lord, that in the midst of it all, you have truly given to us a message of hope and a message of life. And Lord, I pray that as we open your holy word, that your Holy Spirit would fill this room, that you'd fill our hearts, that you would be the teacher tonight, that you'd put place in our hearts a conviction of our need of you. And I pray, Lord, that we would be refreshed and that we would be blessed by the words we're about to hear from you. So please speak now, Lord. Remove every earthly distraction, every worldly care. And I pray, Lord, that, that uh, you would open our ears to hear the message of life today. This is our prayer, and we, we thank you for hearing us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Our message tonight, friends, is entitled, Prophecies Final Countdown. We're going to learn tonight in this opening foundational presentation exactly where we are in the stream of prophetic time. I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Revelation chapter 12 as we begin our study tonight. We're going to go to the 12th chapter of the book of Revelation where we find a war being described in prophetic language. Now this is a chapter we will definitely cover on future nights, but I want us to just notice something interesting about this war between good and evil. We want to find out the nature of this battle that we are all in the midst of this evening. We're in Revelation chapter 12. Notice what the Bible says, beginning with verse 7. Revelation chapter 12, verse 7 through 9. Make sure you write that down and notice with me in your Bible. Of course, this is a Bible prophecy seminar, so we encourage you to bring a Bible. Now, if you don't have one, let us know. We'll do our best to provide one for you. Uh, but if you see someone next to you that doesn't have a Bible and you have one, maybe you can share with your neighbor. But notice what it says here, Revelation 12, beginning with verse 7. If you're there, would you please let me know by saying amen. The Bible says, And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought in his angels and prevailed not. Neither was their place found anymore in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceives how much of the world? The whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Here we read, friends, in prophetic language, how there was a war that began in heaven that moved to planet earth, and it's still being fought to this day, friends, in the battlefield of our minds. Now, what kind of war was this that began in heaven? Well, friends, it was a battle between good and evil. A battle between righteousness and wickedness. But what was the nature of this battle? Well, friends, if you were to look up that word war in the original Greek language that the New Testament was written in, it gives us some insight as to the nature of this conflict. For the word war in Greek is the word polemos. Can you say that? And it means strife, a quarrel, a dispute, or an argument. In other words, friends, the nature of this war that began in heaven was much more than a physical fight. It was much more than a clash of arms. 
it was really a conflict of ideas, a conflict of beliefs, a conflict of the will. And that war that began in heaven, Bible says, move to this world, and it's still being fought today, friends, to this day. We are all in the midst of a war between good and evil, a great controversy, a cosmic battle, a supernatural conflict, and it's being fought upon the battlefield of the mind. And the reason for that is because whoever has your mind will eventually determine your destiny. Because it is our mind that produces our thoughts and feelings. Isn't that right? Our thoughts and feelings are made manifest in our words and actions. Words and actions form habits. Habits make up your character. And it is your character that determines your destiny. In other words, your destiny is determined by your character, which is made up of your habits, which are formed by your words and actions that come from your thoughts and feelings that originate in the mind. So whoever has your mind will shape your character and determine your destiny. And friends, that's what the battle is about. God and Satan is both fighting against each other for our attention. Whoever you yield your mind to will determine your destiny. Now, I want you to notice what the Bible says is Satan, one of Satan's main goals in this battle between good and evil. I want you to notice with me on the screen, please write it down. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, the Bible says this. In whom the God of this world, that is Satan, has blinded the what, everyone? The what? The minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. One of Satan's main goals in this battle between good and evil, friends, is to blind our minds from seeing the light. He does not want us to see this glorious light. The devil is working overtime to try to hide the light from shining into our minds. And friends, one of the, way, one of the great ways he does that is to fill our lives with so much busyness to where we have no time to yield our mind to be enlightened with spiritual things. Friends, listen to this very carefully. If the devil cannot make you bad, he'll make you busy. Either way, he's got you. If he can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. He'll occupy your life with so many things. And isn't it the reality of the world that we live? We live in a very fast-paced society. There are so many appointments and deadlines and schedules and activities pulling us here and there and everywhere. You ask the average person how they're doing, how their life is going, and most people will say, oh, things are good, but man, I'm so busy. Have you ever said that before? My friends, that's a calculated attack of the enemy to try to distract us. And that word busy is an acronym, B-U-S-Y. You know what it stands for? Burdened under Satan's yoke. And I don't want to be busy like that, amen? The devil, according to this passage, is trying to blind our minds from seeing the light. He's afraid of that light. He's afraid of what will happen when we see the light. Now, while he's trying to blind us, God is trying to illuminate us. For notice what it says in verse 6. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6, it says, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts. To give the light, but what is the light, everyone? The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So this passage, passage defines for us 
what exactly is that light? It is the light of the knowledge of the glory or the character of God. In other words, Satan does not want us to see the light that reveals the knowledge of who God is, whereas God is desperately trying to shine that light in our hearts and in our minds. And friends, I'm so grateful that you chose to be here tonight. My friends, you have to realize that the devil doesn't want you to be here. In fact, whether you recognize it or not, he tried his best to stop you from coming to this place. This is one of the last places that the enemy would ever want us to be. Because in this seminar, what we're doing, friends, is we're yielding our mind to the Lord to be enlightened with that glorious light. And he tried, Satan tried his best to stop you from coming. But friends, the fact that you are here tonight shows that God has won a mighty victory in your life. Can you say amen? You made the right decision when you decided to come here tonight. I don't know how you came. Maybe you were invited by a friend. Maybe you received an invitation in the mail. Maybe something was left at the door. No matter how you got here, it was the Holy Spirit that brought each and every one of us here. And friends, I want to encourage you. I want to affirm you in that decision. You made the right decision, and God has a special blessing in store for you. Satan is trying to blind us from seeing the light. The devil is trying to illuminate us and enlighten us. But the question is this, where is the light of that knowledge actually found? What is this life-saving, illuminating knowledge that God is trying to shine in our hearts? Where is it found? Well, the Bible tells us in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, that it's found in God's holy word. Notice what it says here. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, please write it down. Notice with me on the screen. It says, we have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed, as unto a what, everyone? A light that shines in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. My friends, in this passage, God's sure word of prophecy is that light that helps us to see our way through the darkness of the devil's deceptions in these last days. God's word, in other words, is a floodlight that helps us to see the knowledge of who God is and what his will is for our life, especially in the context of these last days. It's called the sure word of prophecy. And friends, in a world full of uncertainties and unsureties, I am so thankful that God has given us his sure word. There is something that we can be certain and sure about, and that is the light shining from the Holy Bible. But the question is this, how can we be so sure of the sure word of prophecy? I'm not going to take for granted that all of you believe in the Bible. Perhaps there's individuals here tonight that have struggled with faith in the Bible, and you, maybe you've heard about the Bible, maybe you've gone to church all your life, but you never came to the point that that. You personally have decided, yes, I believe in the Bible. And you're asking questions, how can we be so sure that this is not just another quote-unquote religious book? Where is the evidence that we can trust in the message of the Bible? Well, friends, there are many ways that we, many reasons why we can trust the message of the Bible. I want to give you two of them tonight. One of the reasons why we can trust that God's Word is the absolute truth is because the Bible Unlike other books that can influence your thinking, the Bible does far more than that. The Bible actually has the power to change and transform your life 
from the inside out. And I speak, friends, from personal experience. I was never brought up in a religious or Christian household. Growing up, I had no idea what was God or who was God. My parents were never churchgoers, and so they never brought me. And so I, had, I was totally ignorant of what this book was all about. And as a result of not having any spiritual guidance in my life, I started making terrible decisions from a very young age. I was addicted to drugs and addicted to the pleasures of this world. And this was me when I was 16 years old, constantly getting high, burning up my brain cells and chasing the world. If you look into these eyes, there's no life in these eyes. I was just a shell, trying to find something to satisfy the longing in my heart. But let me tell you, friends, in this lost condition, when I was addicted and a slave to sin, in this lost condition, someone came and they knocked on my door and they invited me to a Bible prophecy seminar. Have you ever heard of anything like that before? A seminar just like this? And I came to those meetings. Many times I came to those meetings high, my mind in the clouds. But as as I sat there night after night as a 16-year-old youngster listening to the truths of this book and the God that it points to, let me tell you, friends, the power of the Word penetrated my clouded mind and it pierced my, my, my hardened heart. And during those meetings, I found life because I found Jesus. And I gave my life to Christ. And through one prayer, the Lord made me free. He took took away and removed all those addictions that I was a slave to. And then he began to restore all those burnt brain cells. And I stand before you here this evening as a preacher of his holy message of life, telling you that you can trust the Bible. God's word has power not only to influence your thinking, but to change you, to give you a new sense of hope, a, a new sense of peace and rest that every human heart is searching and longing for. Let me tell you, friends. It doesn't matter how you come. What matters is that you come. You can come just as you are, broken and messed up with issues in life. We all have issues. It doesn't matter how you come. Just come, friends, and let God God perform a mighty miracle of grace in your life. Friends, we can trust the message of the Bible because, because it has the power to change a person's life from the inside out. If you've experienced that or if you want to experience that more, let me hear you say amen. But there's another reason why we can trust the message of the Bible. And that, my friends, is the testimony of prophecy. I want you to notice this passage in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 and verse 10. We find God, the God of the Bible that is, making the most exclusive claim that could ever be made. Notice what it says here. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is how much? None else. I am God, and there is none like me. Friends, those words we just read is the most exclusive claim that could ever be made. Here, the God of the Bible is claiming to be the one true God. He says, I am He, and there is none else. The implication in that claim is that any other God that people are following or worshiping is a false God. And if it's a false God, that would make it a lie or a deception. Now, that's a huge claim. But here the the question is this, how do we know that's true? Are we to accept this blindly? Is this an empty statement 
what gives this claim any weight to it? How do we know? Can we test it? Oh, friends, I'm so grateful that God not only makes the most exclusive claim that it can ever be made, but he actually gives us a way that we can verify or test to see that it, if, if it's the tru- truth or not. And that's found in the next verse. The next verse says, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done. My friends, we call that prophecy. Prophecy is the foretelling of the future. God says, I'm the one true God, and that which gives weight to that claim is that I'm going to tell you the end from the beginning. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen before it does, so that when it happens, you can know that what I say about myself, what I claim about myself, is the truth. In other other words, friends, fulfilled Bible prophecy verifies, what word did I say? verifies the truthfulness of God's Word, and it gives us confidence that the future is in the hands of God. My friends, if you're to survey all the quote-unquote holy books of the world, writings that people are claiming to be holy or, or of divine origin, the writings of Muhammad and the writings of Confucius and the writings of Buddha, and then you compare that with the writings of the Bible, you'll find that besides the Bible, all the other quote-unquote holy books contain Little or no predictive prophecy at all. No predictive prophecy in the, in the writings of these books. And that ought to raise a question in the thinking person's mind. Why not? If those books are truly of divine origin, why then is there an absence of predictive prophecy? And here's the reason. It's because the future must be known before it can be revealed. The future must be what? before it can be. And the fact that the future is not revealed in the writings of Muhammad and the writings of Confucius and the writings of Buddha is because the gods of those books don't know the future because they're not real. However, when you study the Bible, over 30% of the contents of this book is predictive prophecy. God has given us plenty of evidence that we can rest our faith upon. Things that we can actually verify with our own study. Can you say amen? I like to say that the, the Christian or the biblical worldview is the thinking person's worldview. It's not a blind faith, it's an intelligent faith. And friends, you will see that and that conviction will grow in your heart as you take a look at these prophecies for yourself. Now let me quickly remind us, God's motive for revealing the future to us. You see, the reason why God has revealed the future is not simply to satisfy our curiosity or to scare us. No, friends. The reason why he's revealed the future is so that we can come to the point of trusting him with our personal future. Jesus said it like this. John 14, verse 29, write it down. Jesus said, And now I have told you before it come to pass, that when it is come to pass, you might what? You might believe. In other words, friends, the purpose of a seminar like this as we study prophecy, is not simply to satisfy the curiosity, but rather to build up within our hearts a faith and a trust that believes in who God is. In other words, Jesus is after a personal relationship with us. Because let me tell you, friends, we're not saved by what we know, but by who we know. And the Lord has revealed the what to draw us to the who. He's revealed these things to us, not 
as an end in themselves, but rather as a means to drawing him to himself. And friends, that's what God is after. Friends, it's amazing when you think about that, that the great God of the universe is not too big and not too busy to want to have a personal relationship with you and with me. No matter who you are or what you've done in your life, God loves you and he actually wants to have a relationship with you that is not like any other relationship with anyone else in this world. And friends, as we study prophecy, that's the purpose. It's to, it's for Jesus to draw us into a relationship with himself that we might experience the hope, the peace, and the rest that only he can give. Can you say amen? That's the purpose of this seminar. It's not simply to find out what the future holds. But more than that, to find out who holds the future. Amen? And so, there are two books in the Bible that are books that really deal with end time prophecies. The books of Daniel and Revelation. And this evening, we want to take a look at the foundational prophecy in the book of Daniel that reveals to us the future that we might know that our God is a God that we can trust. So please take your Bible and turn to the book of Daniel. We're going to go to the second chapter. This perhaps is a familiar prophecy to many of us, but I hope that tonight that we will read it again for the first time. Notice Daniel chapter 2 is a, an amazing story about an ancient king who had a remarkable dream given from God. We're going to go back now. 2,500 years in the past to find out what the future holds for us. Daniel chapter 2, we're going to begin with verse 1, and we will stay here for the rest of our time this evening. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 1, if you're there, would you let me know by saying amen. Here's the story now. Bible says, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams wherewith his spirit was troubled and his sleep break from him. Then the king commanded to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans, for to show the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. The king said unto them, I have dreamed a dream, and my spirit was troubled to know the dream. Then spake the Chaldeans to the king in Syriac, O king, live forever. Tell thy servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. So here we read the story about an ancient king of the most powerful kingdom in the world in this time. His name, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the mighty kingdom of Babylon. And the record tells us that this king was rudely awakened in his royal bedchamber one night by the cogitations of his own mind. He had some remarkable nightmare of some sort, and the dream was so vivid that the king was impressed with its importance. You see, ancient kings back then believed that that the gods would communicate to them through dreams. So thinking that it was some kind of message from the gods, the king called his cabinet together. He called his counselors, the wise men, the astrologers, the soothsayers. These were the intellectuals, the experts, and the specialists of that day. The crystal ball gazers and palm readers of that time, they were trained in the arts of science, but mingled with pagan superstition. And now the king demands from them to tell him what he himself had forgotten. But as you read their response, these wise men begin to sweat. Because this was a different request. that They, they, they never received a request like this before. 
Whenever the king had a dream, he would always tell the dream, and then they would make up an interpretation to satisfy his curiosity. But this time, the king didn't remember his dream. So notice what he says in verse 5. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The thing is gone from me. If you will not make known unto me the dream with the interpretation thereof, you shall be cut in pieces, and your houses shall be made a dunghill. But if you show the dream and the interpretation thereof, you shall receive of me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and the interpretation thereof. There are two things the king wanted to know. Number one, he wanted to know what he dreamt. And number two, he wanted to know what it meant. The dream and the interpretation. The wise men begin to sweat. They see the anger of the king. Why? Because it's dawning upon the king that he has a bunch of phonies on the royal payroll. That these wise men were not truly wise at all. That they had been lying to him and deceiving him the whole time. You see, these wise men could not tell the king what he dreamt. Why? Because this dream was a different kind of dream. It, was a, it wasn't a dream that came from eating pizza late at night. It was a dream that came from the God of heaven. The wise men could not tell the dream. Why? Because spiritual things are spiritually discerned. You have to have, the, have a connection with God to understand the things of God. And so the king is so angry, he realizes this, that he orders these wise men to be executed. Those whom he had trusted are, are, are disappointing him. They are not able to come through for the king. He is so furious. Execute these wise men of Babylon. And friends, this teaches us a very important lesson. And that is, it is a dangerous thing. It is a foolish thing to trust in the arm of flesh. You see, how many times have we made the same mistake that this king made? He trusted in men and his counselors, but they could not come through for him. You see, we can't trust man's word. Man's word is fallible, unstable, unreliable. Friends, listen, how many times have we heard politicians making promises that were not, they were not able to keep? Jesus warns us over and over again in the Bible that it's a dangerous thing to trust in man. He said false Christ and false prophets, do not be deceived by them. This includes politicians and presidents and professors and priests, even pastors. The Bible says, cursed be the man that trusts in man. Friends, tell me, what happens if you're leading on somebody and that person falls? What's going to happen to you? You'll fall with that person. But I'm so grateful that we can lean upon the everlasting arms of the Lord. Amen. Bible says that we can't even trust our own judgment. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he will direct thy paths. My friends, one of the last persons you should ever trust is a preacher. That might sound surprising to you because let me tell you, I'm a preacher. I'm, I'm putting myself in that category. You can't trust in what a man says. Unless that man backs up everything with a thus saith the Lord, and an it is written, this is what we can trust. Amen? One of the most confusing places on earth. You know what the, one of the most confusing places on earth is? A Christian bookstore. <laughs> now, I don't have anything against Christian bookstores. I, I frequent them often. But what, the reason why I say that is because you find somebody writing a book on a certain topic. And then right next to that is another person's book on that same topic. And another person, and that person says something different from what the other book said. And, and you read these books, and you get so confused. What's the truth? 
Well, friends, that's why we have to go to the source, the Bible, to know what the truth really is. Amen? The king trusted in his wise men. These were the, these were the, 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 the experts. And, and friends, the lesson we learned from him is don't take man's word for it. Don't be spoon-fed by the minister. Allow God to teach you. Study to show yourself approved unto God. Go to the source. Amen? And friends, as I mentioned, the reason why the wise men could not come through for the king, because this dream was a spiritual dream. It came from the God of heaven. But amongst the wise men of Babylon, there was one who was truly a wise man. His name was Daniel, a Hebrew captive. In his late teens, he served the true God. He heard about the hasty decree of the king to execute the wise men. And he was a part of the wise men of Babylon, but he was a true wise man. And when Daniel realized that that decree included him, and when his life was on the line, what did he do? He approached the king and asked the king for some time that he might find out what the king dreamt and what the dream meant. Now, friends, when Daniel asked for some time, Daniel had no clue what the king dreamt. But Daniel knew someone that did know. He knew God. Amen? And so what did Daniel do when his back was against the wall? What did he do when the threat of death was hanging over him? He went straight to God in prayer. And he began to speak to the Lord, the one that gave the dream. My friends, what an example for us. When you're in trouble, who do you go to? You go straight to God in prayer. Amen? Prayer is the means of connecting with the divine watcher in the heavens. Prayer, friends, what is that? It's the key in the hands of faith that unlocks the storehouse of heaven where our treasure pours the boundless resources of wisdom and understanding and all power. Prayer, my friends, is simply the opening up your, of your heart to God as to a friend. It's not some vain repetition we repeat over and over again. No, friends, it's simply sharing with the Lord what's on our hearts. And the purpose of prayer is not to inform God because God already knows before we pray. The purpose of prayer is not to inform God, but rather it is for God to transform us. It is the means by which we unload our worries and our cares and our struggles to the Lord. And so, friends, if you're going through a problem in your marriage, take that to God in prayer. If you're struggling in your finances, or maybe you got some health issues, maybe you're having problems with your children, no matter what the problem, big or small, our sovereign God sees them all, and He cares about every single detail of our lives. And friends, when we go to God in prayer, unloading the burdens, the big and the small, it's as if God is listening to us, and, and He's not listening to anyone else in that moment of time. That's how intimate God is. He listens. He is the burden bearer. The sorrow soother and the head lifter. Friends, more, par- more prayer, more power. Little prayer, little power. No prayer, no power at all. So don't miss your divine appointment with God in the secret place of prayer. Amen? Daniel prays. My mom was praying for me when I was doing drugs, and that's why I'm standing before you here today, friends. Because God heard that prayer. By one prayer, I was made free from that life of addiction. God can do the same for everybody. So Daniel prays. You know what he does after that? He goes to sleep. He doesn't stay up all night worrying about it. He goes to sleep. And while he is sleeping, God is answering his prayer by giving to him the same dream that he gave to the king the night before. Oh, what an example. You know, sometimes we pray, we bring our burdens to the Lord, and then we stay up all night worrying about it. 
My friends, bring your struggles to God and leave it there. Amen? After you pray, just go to sleep. Rest in the reality that heaven hears and that the answer is coming in God's way according to his perfect will and according to his perfect timing. You know, sometimes we don't receive the answer to our prayer because we're staying up all night worrying about it. Can you imagine if Daniel stayed up all night? Maybe he would not have received the dream. So go to sleep. Rest in the arms of God. Amen. After Daniel woke up the next morning, he's able to approach the king with confidence. You see, Daniel was able to, to come before this earthly kings because he first knelt low before the king of kings. Friends, you can stand before any man as long as you kneel low before God. Amen. And he's able to come to the king with absolute confidence. And I want you to notice what he says to the king, Daniel chapter 2. Notice with me in verse 26. The Bible says, the king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, art thou able to make known unto me the dream which I have seen and the interpretation thereof? Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, the secret which the king hath demanded, cannot the wise men... The astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers show unto the king. Here Daniel is reminding the king of the folly of trusting in the wise men. Daniel is basically saying, but, but king, what about these wise men that you employ? Can't they help you? And the king ha has to acknowledge, at least in his mind, that it was a foolish thing to trust in those wise men. But then Daniel makes a contrast in verse 28. Notice what it says. Verse 28, it says, but... There is a God in heaven. Friends, it will be well for us to remember that when man disappoints us, when your spouse walks out on you, when your children are disrespecting you, when your friends are betraying you, there's still a God in heaven that sits upon the throne. And while your life may seem to be out of control, there's still one that sits on the throne. He's still in control, and we can trust him with our life. Amen? Daniel says, but there's a God in heaven that reveals secrets, and makes known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the what? In the latter or the last days. Thy dream and thy visions of thy head upon thy bed are these. As for thee, O king, thy thoughts came into thy mind upon thy bed, what should come to pass hereafter? And he that reveals secrets makes known to thee what shall come to pass. But as for me, this secret is not revealed to me for any wisdom that I have more than any living, but for their sakes that shall make known the interpretation to the king, and that thou mightest know the thoughts of thy heart. So Daniel now tells the king the nature of the dream. He tells the king the reason why God gave you this dream is to show you things which must surely come to pass. In other words, it was a prophetic dream. Oh, what kind of dream? A dream that would reveal the future of the, of the king and his kingdom and future kingdoms to follow. And friends, God is saying, Daniel says that the reason why God gave this dream is so that you might know what's going to happen. And so Daniel now continues to explain to the king exactly what he saw. Let's read it. Verse 31. Thou, O king, sawest, and behold, a great image. This great image whose brightness was excellent stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. This image's head was of fine gold. His breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron and his feet part of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest to that a stone was cut out without hands, 
which smote the image upon his feet. They're of iron and clay, and break them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together, and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain, and it filled the whole earth. And friends, I can imagine that as Daniel is recounting to the king his dream, the king starts to get excited. He scoots to the edge of his throne. Yes, that's what I saw. That's what I saw. It's all coming back to him now. What exactly did the king see? He saw an image of a man, an idol, you can say. And this image was made of different metals. The head was pure gold, chest and arms, silver. The belly and thighs were made of brass, the long legs of iron. Then the feet with the ten toes, partly of iron, partly of clay. Then the king saw a stone cut out without hands, which means it wasn't of human devising. And that stone hit the image at the feet, the very foundation, and it blew that image to smithereens. And that rock, that stone that destroyed that idol became a great mountain, and it filled the whole earth. Wow, what a remarkable dream. No wonder why the king was so eager and anxious to know what it was. Remember, the king wanted to know two things. Number one, he wanted to know what he dreamt. And number two, he wanted to know what it meant. And I'm so grateful that God doesn't do things halfway. He does things all the way. Amen. And so now Daniel interprets the dream to the king. And I'm going to let you read the whole thing when you go home. We'll summarize on the screen. Daniel said in chapter 2, verse 38, to King Nebuchadnezzar, thou art this head of gold. In other words, the golden head upon this metal man, would represent Nebuchadnezzar and the kingdom of Babylon. In fact, the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 14 that Babylon was the golden city. And so every other metal that would follow after that would represent another kingdom that would come after Babylon. There are four specific metals in the image representing four specific kingdoms. And as we compare this ancient prophecy written over 2,500 years ago to history, we will see that what God has revealed in the past has happened to the T exactly as he had predicted, which shows us this evening, friends, that we can trust the message of the Bible. God knows the future. He's revealed it to us so that we can trust him with our personal future as well. In other words, this metal man is a divine timeline. It's a what, everyone? It's a timeline, a forecast of the empires that would dominate the world from Daniel's day to our day. Let's go through through them together, shall we? The first, the head of gold, represents Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. The ancient ruins of Babylon are located about 60 miles south of Baghdad in modern-day Iraq. And friends, when you study history, Babylon was a powerful, impregnable kingdom. The walls were about 60 miles around and 160 feet high. And at some points, they were thick enough that four chariots of horses could race on the tops of those walls. Not only that, but the mighty river Euphrates ran through the city of Babylon, providing water for the crops of the Babylonians to the extent that history tells us that the Babylonians had a 20-year food supply. So that if they were ever besieged by an enemy army, they could outweigh that besiegement for at least 20 years. And if the river Euphrates ever flooded, 
thus endangering the city, the Babylonians were master engineers. They had these massive gates that would block off, they would come together and block off the excess water of the river Euphrates. The bars would go all the way down to the riverbed and any excess water would be diverted around the walls of Babylon, creating a moat of protection. It was a fortified, powerful, impregnable kingdom. No wonder why Nebuchadnezzar thought that his kingdom would last forever. But even this fortified kingdom came to an end. History tells us that the Babylonian kingdom ruled from 605 to 539 B.C. because the prophecy continues. Daniel says, but after thee. Now I'm sure that the king didn't like that part. I'm sure when Daniel said, king, you're the head of gold, I'm sure the king felt flattered. Oh yes, I'm the head of gold. And perhaps he would have been satisfied with that. But Daniel had to also give the message that, was, that would cut, the, cut across the grain. He not only had to tell the positive truth, he also had to tell the, the cutting truth. But after thee shall arise another kingdom. Then to add insult to injury, what kind of kingdom? A kingdom that it is inferior to thee. Well, how is it possible for an inferior kingdom to overcome a superior kingdom? Just like silver is inferior to that of gold, so to the next kingdom would be a weaker kingdom than that of Babylon. Well, how is that possible? Well, friends, listen, you can read all about it in Daniel chapter 5. Please write that down and read it when you go home tonight. In the fifth chapter of Daniel, we read about how Babylon is fallen, is fallen. And the story tells us that Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, Belshazzar, what was his name? This is the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. He is partying within the walls of Babylon. Bible says that he threw a feast for a thousand of his lords. He has his generals there, his soldiers, his wise men. Not only that, but he has his wives in the plural and his concubines. That's his girlfriends on the side. And the king is there as the host. He is the life of the party. And they're drinking the best wine. They're dancing to the finest music. They're being entertained by the most captivating entertainment in Babylon. Anyone who is, uh, everyone who, is, who was anyone is present at the party. And the king is dressed there in his royal robes as the life of the party. And all seems to be well. Babylon celebrates in the midst of a stupendous crisis. Because what was happening on the outside of the walls, danger was coming. Judgment was about to fall. And as the king is there parting and living it up, not having a care in the world, all of a sudden the message of judgment was sent. The king saw the handwriting on the wall. In letters of fire, a message of doom, a message of gloom. And as he saw the writing on the wall, he could not read or understand what it was. Why? Because spiritual things are spiritually discerned. The wise men could not read it. Then the king said, whoever can read the writing, I will make the third ruler in Babylon. The what number ruler? The th and by the way, let me quickly tell you, you know why that message happened? Because just before that, the king made a dangerous mistake. He ordered his men to bring to him the golden cups that his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar took from the sacred temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. He said to his servants, bring me those golden cups, those cups that were used in the Lord's service. 
the sacred holy cups of God. He said, bring me those cups. Why? So that he could drink his old wine of Babylon in those sacred golden cups. What the king is doing, friends, he is mixing the sacred and the profane together. He's mixing that which is holy with that which is unholy. And that sacrilegious act was like the last straw that broke the camel's back. Judgment fell when the king mixed the sacred and the profane. Friends, listen, the reason why Babylon fell is because they mixed truth and error together. And that's an important fact. You know why? Because in the book of Revelation, it talks about an end-time kingdom also called Babylon that has a golden cup full of intoxicating wine in her hand that causes almost the whole world to become spiritually drunk, intoxicated, confused, deceived. And that religious man-made system is a fallen system. And the only way we can understand that prophecy in Revelation is if we understand this foundational prophecy. And so that's a study that will be covered on a future night. But when he mixed the sacred and the profane, the handwriting was seen on the wall. And then he said, whoever can read and interpret it, I'll make the third ruler in Babylon. Now, why did the king offer the third position and not the second? Why the third? Well, here's the reason. You'll find this interesting. Because Belshazzar himself held the second position in Babylon. You see, he co-ruled Babylon with his father, which was the son of Nebuchadnezzar. His father's name is Nabonidus. Nabonidus and Belshazzar co-ruled Babylon. Nabonidus had the first position. Belshazzar had the second position. Therefore, he could only offer the third position. But here's something interesting about that fact. The Bible does not give a clear reference to Nabonidus as the king of Babylon. It only gives a clear reference to Belshazzar as the king of Babylon during this time. However, history and archaeology, for many centuries, there is no evidence of the existence of Belshazzar as the king of Babylon. Only the existence of Nabonidus. And this seeming discrepancy between the biblical record and the archaeological record caused many people to scoff in skepticism and write the Bible off as a fictitious fairy tale. For many centuries, people thought that, man, the Bible is a fairy tale. It talks about Belshazzar, and yet we don't have any evidence of the existence of Belshazzar. We have existence of Nabonidus, but where's the reference of Nabonidus in the Bible? And it was a seeming discrepancy until in the year 1854 that the British archaeologist, J.G. Taylor, discovered the famous cylinder of Nabonidus, a cylinder dating back to around 556 to 539 B.C. And in ancient cuneiform texts, this cylinder references Belshazzar as the son of Nabonidus. I, I took this picture. I saw it with my own eyes when I was there in the British Museum a few years ago. And here's what it says. As for me, Nabonidus, king of Babylon. As for Belshazzar, the eldest son, my offspring. And friends, when this archaeological discovery was, was, was made, the skeptics were silenced. And the rocks were crying out that God's word is the true. But not only that, friends, it shows us today that the prophecies of the book of Daniel had to have been written around 605 to 530 B.C. If it was written after that, and if it was written after the fact, then they would have wrote about Nabonidus. 
But, the, but this shows that the book of Daniel actually preserved a part of history that was lost for many centuries. Friends, we can trust the message of the Bible. Can you say amen? So Daniel came to read the writing. And then he said, here's what it means. Mene, God hath numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Tekel, thou art weighed in the balances and art found wanting. Perez, thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. It was a message of judgment on Babylon. Babylon would, would be judged and it would fall that very night. Friends, the record tells us that as Belshazzar was parting inside of the walls, Cyrus and the Medes and the Persian armies were surrounding Babylon on the outside of the walls. They were looking for a way to penetrate the massive fortifications, but a breach in the wall was impossible. And so Cyrus came up with another strategy to infiltrate Babylon. What did he do? He marched his army about a mile up the river Euphrates, and he ordered his, his soldiers, his men, to begin to dig trenches to divert the water of the Euphrates into open fields so that the water level could drop significantly so that he could march his army through the riverbed into the kingdom of Babylon. But there's only one problem with that strategy. What about the massive gates that blocked off the excess water of Euphrates? Those bars that went all the way down to the riverbed, how would it get past the gates? Well, friends, over a hundred years before this ever happened, God actually prophesied how the problem would be solved through the Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah 44, 27, and 28. Please write it down. Notice with me on the screen. Isaiah 44, 27, and 28. God actually describes how Babylon would fall. And it says, that says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up thy rivers. That saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure. Then the next verse, which is in the next chapter, chapter 45, verse 1, says this. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. To who, everyone? To Cyrus. Whose right hand I have held to subdue nations before him. I will loose the loins of kings and open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gate shall not be shut. So God in this prophecy reveals how Babylon would fall. It would fall by the drying up of the rivers and that the gates wouldn't be shut. And just as God predicted, that, uh, 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 Cyrus found that to be the case. He dried up the rivers. And he, he marched his army through the riverbed. The gates were opened that night. And friends, what this shows us is not only that we can trust the message of the Bible, but this shows us something beautiful about God. And that is, friends, he knows us. He knows everything about us, even before we were born. You see, this prophecy was penned by the prophet Isaiah approximately 150 years before Cyrus was even born. God called him by name 150 years before he was born, and he had a plan and purpose for his life. My friends, let me tell you, the same God that knew Cyrus by name, he knows your name too. Not only does he know your name, he's got your number. He knows where you live and where you work. He knows all your passwords in your social media accounts. He knows everything about us. God knows the deepest, darkest secrets of our lives. He reads us like an open book. All things are naked and open to the eyes of God. We can fool man, but we can't fool him. He sees who we really are. He knows what's happened in the dark. And friends, what, I, what just blows my mind about this is that the one that knows me the very best 
is the one that loves me the very most. He knows the deepest, the, the darkest secrets. Things I don't want anyone to know. He knows. And yet he still looks at me with eyes of infinite love, pity, and compassion. My friends, you need to know that no matter how badly you've messed up in your life, the one that knows you the very best is the one that loves you the very most. And he has a plan and purpose for your life. Amen. And he is the God that has also seen what has happened to us in the dark. Maybe we were abused and mistreated. Maybe there are some terrible experiences of our past that we can't forget, that haunt us to this day. Well, friends, God sees, he knows, and when we were going through that, when we were going through that sorrow and that difficulty, he was hurting with us. He's a God that he's not indifferent to our pain, friends. He is affected by human sorrow. One day he will right every wrong that has been committed. Amen. We can trust him. We can give to him our pain, our sorrow, and our sins. He's the God that can turn our sorrows into sweet joy. Amen. The same God that knew Cyrus knows you. There is a plan and purpose for your life. You're not an accident. There's a divine intention for you being here no matter how you got here. The same God that used Cyrus to set the people of God free. He wants to use you to set the captives free too. Amen. I would have never thought that God would be using me like he does today. But friends, the reason why is because God is trying to save me in the process. God knows us. And so, just as Isaiah predicted, a God revealed to Isaiah, Cyrus dried up the river. March his army through the riverbed, the gates weren't shut, and on that night, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. The famous Cyrus Cylinder, found there in the British Museum, records this Persian attack against Babylon. And you can see it for yourself there in the British Museum. History tells us that the Medes and Persians began to rule an inferior kingdom, overcoming a superior kingdom. They ruled from 539 to 331 B.C. But then after that, a third metal was introduced, the belly and thighs of brass. Notice what it says, verse 39. And another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all of the earth. But which was the kingdom that followed the Medes and the Persians? What, is the brass rep- uh, 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 what does the ba- brass represent? Represents the Grecian Empire under the rulership of Alexander the Great. The Greeks were fast and fierce fighters. Alexander the Great began to conquer the different kingdoms and the different armies of the world when he was 16 years old. He succeeded in conquering every kingdom and army by the time he was 30 years old. Under the short span of about 13, 14 years, he was able to conquer the whole world and Greece began to rule. The Greeks were actually known for using bronze weapons and bronze shields. But though Alexander the Great and the Grecians could conquer the world, Alexander the Great could not conquer the greatest enemy of all, and that was himself. History tells us that at just two years after conquering the world, he died in a drunken stupor. He couldn't conquer his own addictions and his own bad habits. And my friends, this teaches us a very important spiritual lesson, and that is this. Your greatest enemy is not those around you. The greatest enemy you face is the one that you look at every single morning in the mirror, self is the greatest enemy. My friends, not even the devil is your greatest enemy. The devil is the defeated enemy. He only has power over us 
that we give to him. Self is the enemy we need to fear most. And friends, when we have learned to conquer self by the power of the Holy Spirit, we have won the greatest victory of all. Can you say amen? Alexander the Great conquered the whole world. He had the whole world. But he died just two years later. Jesus said, what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? My friends, you can have all the world. But if you don't have Jesus, what do you got? You have nothing, friends. But the flip is also true. You may have nothing in this world. But if you have Jesus, you got everything. And if Jesus is all you have, then you have all you need. If Jesus is all you have, you have all you need. Amen? Let's learn from the life of Alexander the Great. Grecians ruled, history tells us, from 331 to 168 B.C. Then there was a fourth metal introduced, the long legs of iron. The next kingdom, verse 40 says, and the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaks in pieces and subdues all things. What was the kingdom that followed Greece? It was the iron monarchy of Rome. In fact, Edward Gibbons, who wrote the history of the, the decline and the fall of the Roman Empire, he wasn't a Christian. He was not writing from a biblical perspective. But he, was, he actually borrows Bible imagery to tell the story of history. Notice what he wrote. The images of gold, of silver, or brass that might serve to represent the nations and their kings were successively broken by the iron monarchy of Rome. Rome came after Greece. In fact, the Romans were known for using iron weapons and iron shields, which gave them the advantage over the weaker bronze weapons of the Greeks. And of the four, Rome ruled the longest, 168 B.C. to 476 A.D. Now, what would happen after that? There's not a fifth metal that is introduced. Well, the Bible now introduces a different element altogether. Notice what it says here in verse 41. And whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay, and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be what? Not conquered, but divided. And friends, that's exactly what took place. Rome was not conquered by a fifth empire, but rather it was divided. Barbarian tribes came from the north and began to conquer different territories of the vast Roman Empire. And just as there are ten toes on a normal pair of feet, Rome was divided into ten different kingdoms. There are as follows on the screen. The Alamanni were the modern Germans. The Burgundians were the Swiss. The Franks were the French. Lombards were the Italians. The Anglo-Saxons were the English. The Suevi were the Portuguese. The Visigoths were the Spanish. Then you have the Heruli, Vandals, and Ostrogoths, nations that existed amongst the original ten but are extinct today. We'll find out why on a future night when we talk about that prophecy. But these are the nations that make up modern-day Europe today. And so the Bible says that Rome would be divided. So here we find the divine timeline. Let's see if you can remember without looking at the screen. The head of gold represents which kingdom? Chest and arms of silver is? Medo-Persia. Belly and thighs of brass is? Greece. Long legs of iron is? Rome. And then the, the ten toes, part of iron and part of clay is? Divided Rome or divided Europe. Friends, just as God predicted, the prophecy came true. We can trust the message of the Bible. 
But God gets even more specific. Notice what it says in verse 43. And whereas you saw iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the what? With the seed of men. So Rome or Europe would be divided, but the prophecy tells us that they would try to mingle. They would try to come together. They would try to unite by mingling their seed or their offspring. And history tells us that that is exactly what took place. Napoleon divorced his wife Josephine and married Luisa of Austria in an attempt to unite the divided countries of Europe through intermarriage, trying to bring the divided countries together. Queen Victoria of England reigned for over 60 years. And in an attempt to unite the divided countries of Europe, she married off over 40 of her children and grandchildren into almost every royal family in Europe, thinking that if they were all related, they would stop fighting and all get along. But friends, there's a lot of drama in families, isn't that right? <laughs> Marriage doesn't fix things all the time. And so Europe remains divided. Why? Because the rest of the verse says, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. Clay and iron don't mix. So the Bible is saying that the, the, the divided kingdoms of Europe would remain divided. But that didn't stop man from trying to prove God's word a lie. Another way that man tried to unite the divided countries of Europe was through military conflict and war. And we've seen, friends, throughout history, individuals like Charlemagne and Charles V and Louis XIV and Napoleon and Kaiser Wilhelm and Adolf Hitler with their massive artilleries and their armies tried to unite the divided countries of Europe, but all of them have failed, whereas God's word is unfailing in its accuracy. We can trust the message of the Bible. Amen? This shows us, friends, that history is not a series of random events. History, my friends, is uh, many people try to shape and take control of history, but it's in the hands of God. He gets the last word. He sets up kings and takes down kings. He's got the whole world in his hands. The question is, have you placed your life in his hands? Have you placed yourself in the hands of the king? As we get ready to bring out a few final points... Daniel then said in verse 44, and in the days of these kings, what are these kings? Divided Europe, the feet and the toes. Daniel says during that time, now friends, are we living in a time when Europe is divided tonight? Yes or no? So we can say that in the days of these kings, that's right now. What's going to happen? Shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed? And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand how long? Now God introduces the everlasting, eternal, solid rock kingdom. In a time when the nations of the world are trying to unite together in an ecumenical unity, in a time when people are seeking for global control and global dominance to solve the global issues, the Bible says that God is setting up, setting up a kingdom that will never fall. It will stand forever. It's symbolized by the solid rock that hits the image on the feet at the very foundation. Now, friends, what is, what is that rock? What does that rock kingdom represent? Who is the rock, friends? The rock is not some Polynesian wrestler on WWE. Jesus is the rock. Can you say Amen. And friends, that solid rock kingdom cut out without hands, it's not a human devised kingdom. It's the kingdom of Christ that hits the image at the feet. 
His is an everlasting kingdom that will never be destroyed. It will rise never to fall. Friends, every other kingdom rose to power, then fell into obscurity. But God's kingdom would rise never to fall. And in these last days, God is looking for people who want to be a citizen of that solid rock kingdom. I want to be a citizen. How about you? Daniel concludes by saying to the king, the dream is certain. The interpretation is sure. Oh, my friends. In a world full of uncertainties and unsureties, there is something that you can be certain and sure and solid about. And that is the message of the Word of God. Amen? God gives us prophecy to verify the truthfulness of His Word, to give us confidence. He is the one that holds the future. And He is the one that we can trust with our future tonight. My friends, where are we in the stream of prophetic time? We're not in the head of gold. We're not in the chest and arms of silver. Nor in the belly of brass, the legs of iron, friends. Where are we in this prophecy? We are in the feet, in the toes. Someone said we're so close. We're in the tips of the toenails. We're living right there when Jesus is soon to come. The eternal solid rock kingdom is just upon us. And in these last days, God is wondering, will you be a part of his kingdom? I want to be a part of that kingdom. How about you? The first part of the prophecy came to pass. History and archaeology confirms it. And if the first part came to pass, don't you dare doubt the second part. That solid rock part will come to pass as well. We don't have to be afraid, friends. We can look forward to it with great joy and anticipation. But now the last question, what secures our citizenship? In the eternal solid rock kingdom. Well, friends, here's the thing. In order to be in the kingdom, we must first accept the king. If we want to be in the kingdom, we have to accept the king. You see, many people want the kingdom, but they don't want the king. Because the sinful human heart wants to be the king and ruler of their own lives. That's what's in every person's heart here tonight. We want to be king of our own life. We want the kingdom. We all want to be saved, but we don't really want the king. Or you can't have one without the other. In order to be in that kingdom, we must accept Jesus as king of our lives. But friends, what kind of king is he? We have rebelled against his kingdom. Will he give us a passport to enter in? Let me tell you about this king. He's not only a king of power, but he's a king of kindness and compassion. Here's what this king did, friends. Around 2,000 years ago, there were three men hanging on crosses. Two of them were thieves, but one of them was a king. And they always put the worst criminal in the middle. And as these three men are hanging on these cruel Roman crosses, one of the thieves on one side looked at the man in the middle, and he was content with cursing him with his final breaths. He said, if you are the Son of God, save yourself and save us. But then there was another thief on the other side. And that thief began to look at the man in the mirror himself. As he's hanging on the cross, he begins to take inventory of the life that he had lived. 
He begins to reflect upon the past decisions that he had made that led him to the point to where he was then. And as he looked at the man in the mirror himself, what an ugly sight he beheld. He saw a life of hypocrisy, a life of godlessness and wickedness and wretchedness. And that thief felt overwhelmed with the guilt of his past life. And he thought to himself, who could ever love me? I deserve the death that I'm dying. And he felt in that moment so far away from God. His guilt and his shame is unbearable. It's too heavy for him to handle. He is crushed by condemnation. He is drowning in despair. He feels absolutely helpless, hopeless, friendless, and comfortless until he took his eyes off of the man in the mirror and he placed his eyes on the man in the middle. And when he looked at Jesus, he saw something in the face of Christ that he had never seen before. He saw in that face purity and innocence, testifying that he did not belong on that cross. This man should not be numbered with the transgressors. He looks so out of place. How could he still love those who are hating him and reviling him? How could he pray for the forgiveness of his persecutors? When that thief looked at the man in the middle, he saw the face of Jesus. He wondered, why is there no fear in his eyes or anger in his countenance? He saw in that face a love that was divine. This thief was moved with the conviction that that man hanging in the middle was definitely not a criminal. And he looked more than just a mere man. He looked like a royal king, a king of kindness. And the conviction was confirmed when he read the sign above his head that said, King, he saw the crown of thorns. And he heard the mocking throng cry out, if you're the son of God, save yourself. And the conviction was confirmed. And this thief realized that this was more than just a man, more than just a king. This was the son of God, the Lord of lords and the king of kings. The one whom all the prophecies had pointed to. And the purity of Jesus' presence permeated the atmosphere like a crushed flower whose fragrance fills the air was the love for this king for a people who hated him. And this selfless love was so foreign to this thief, he couldn't understand it. Then he began to compare that selfless love to the selfishness of his sinful life. And the contrast between him and Jesus was so dramatic and distinct. The thief said, I am guilty. I deserve this death. But he is innocent. He doesn't deserve that death. And you know what the thief began to realize? He didn't do anything to deserve this death. He's not dying for himself. Well, if he's not dying for himself, then he must be dying for me. He's taking my place. And then faith sprung up in his heart for the first time in a long time. And that thief said to himself, if he can forgive his murderers, Maybe there's hope for me. Maybe there's mercy left for me too. And the thief said, I have nothing to lose. 
but I got eternity to gain. And so that thief found the faith to say one last prayer, and he looked at the man in the middle, and he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And when that thief said that prayer, he accepted Jesus as Lord and King. And when he prayed that prayer, Jesus stopped dying long enough to hear that prayer. And he gave that wretched thief the assurance of paradise with him. That's what we call amazing grace. That dying thief rejoiced to see the fountain of blood in his day. And there may I, vile as he, wash all my sins away. My friends, we're not worthy to be a part of the kingdom. But the king took our place. Friends, don't you ever forget that you are worth the life of the king. He died for you. You are the most expensive thing in the universe. The king has died for you. And tonight he wants you to be in his kingdom for eternity. How many of you with me want to say tonight, Lord, I confess. I have lived that godless life like that thief. But if you can save him, you can save me too. And you want to accept Jesus as the King and Lord of your life. You want Him to sit upon the throne of your heart, knowing that He has your best interest in mind all the time. And you want to be ready for His coming kingdom. Is that your prayer tonight? If so, would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Father in heaven, we thank you so much, dear God, for sending your only begotten Son, your most prized precious possession. You sent him from heaven to earth on an expensive errand. He came as the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords, and yet he was content to live a simple, selfless life of service. And then to take our place on the cross as a vicarious substitute, a sacrifice Lord, we deserve death because of our sin, and yet Jesus died so that we might have life. Lord, help us to take our eyes off of the man in the mirror and help us to focus on the man in the middle. And help us to realize, Lord, that we can be in your kingdom for eternity because you came to rescue us. So, Lord, we open our hearts. We open our minds. May you take the place, the rightful place, upon the throne of our hearts as the King and Lord of our lives. Lord, please remember us when you come into your kingdom. We thank you for that blessed assurance that we one day soon will be in paradise with you. Make us ready, Lord, is our prayer in Jesus' blessed name that all of the children of God say, Amen.